Well, this morning we're going to continue in our sermon series, like I said, in, in the letters to the Corinthians. Uh, and we are very much at the beginning still. Last week we started this. And if you remember, I started by talking about how Paul approaches his letter. There's lots and lots of issues in the church in Corinth. And, and we're going to be going through those uh, together and exploring those together. And, and talking about actually how a lot of those issues are still very, very relevant for us today. And we're going to go through one of those this morning. I'll get to that in just a second. But just a reminder that Paul, before he gets into any of that, into correcting anything, into dealing with any of the issues, actually, first of all, he deals with the fact uh, of, of the truth. He, he wants to start with the truth and reminding everybody about where they stand in Christ. Because that's really important. Actually, if you know your identity and where your identity lies, it's not in how you behave or how you perform. It's actually solid. It's, you are adopted into God's family, regardless of anything else going on in your life. And he wanted them to understand that before he even started correcting anything. Um, and I think that's such an important thing that we recognize, even in our own walk in life, that we understand our identity is, is firmly planted in Christ, regardless of what goes on, regardless of how we let ourselves down, which the Bible promises we will at times. Um, but, but our identity doesn't change. We are in Christ and nothing can remove us from that. But then Paul jumps straight into uh, a really huge subject in the church. And this is something that I still think is very relevant for us today. And I think that God wants to challenge each and every one of us through this. And that is the subject of division. So let's just read it. 1 Corinthians 10 to 17, it says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there, are no, there, there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same, and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there, are, there, there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I was baptised, that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that, not, so that no one may say that you were baptised in my name. I did baptise also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So there's a lot in there and we're going to unpack some of that actually this week and, and next week we're going to get to that um, whole statement on the cross. Um, but, but this week we're going to focus on the fact that the church is divided and Paul's having to hit it head on. He's, he's speaking directly into that division. And what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to look at the, the subject of division itself and then we're going to look at how Paul approaches this division and finally, what, what I believe the Bible teaches us about how we should be dealing with division that we come across in our lives. You know, one of the saddest statistics that you can read uh, about Canadians, about Canada, is that 40% of marriages in Canada end in divorce. 40% is such a sad number. Uh, that, that's so many broken homes and broken families. 
In this past generation, it has been a statistic that is, and a reality that has changed dramatically from the one before. And many of us have felt or seen this domestic explosion and, 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 and a great description of divorce is where two people's wills that were once at one time in unity and in love, they're now colliding, they're hitting head on, right? Like two rams just headbutting one another. And the truth is when we get to a point where there's two colliding wills that fly around like just indiscriminately, the debris of everything that goes on in that bomb of divorce, the debris, it, the reality of that often land on the people who are the most innocent in that situation, which is the children. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it happen with my own eyes. Children who, are, who go from being happy and secure and loved and settled, all of that is just torn down when you see two people that have chosen to no longer love or to stay committed to one another. And like a breakup in a marriage, I believe that the same is true of church divorce. It's both painful and tragic, especially for the younger Christians in the church who look to their spiritual family for security and stability. And I think most of us have heard stories of, or seen it happen over, the, over our lives where we've seen churches that were once thriving and, 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 and doing so well and really seeing you know, new believers and seeing young leaders like rise up from within their church. It's just incredible. But they go from that to a church that's split, divided, filled with dissension, where hate has replaced love and where chaos has just driven out peace. I read a story this week about uh, two churches, uh, both different denominations, and they lived, both churches were in a small town, uh, a few blocks from one another. And they're, and they're thinking, well, wouldn't it be better if we merge and become one church? Like if we're one united body, uh, you know, we, we think we could be, you know, we would be larger. We think we'd be more effective as a church rather than two struggling churches alone. And this was a good idea at first. However, both churches they just proved too petty to pull it off. And, and what's the problem that they had, right? Like you're thinking, well, it must have been some huge theological debate that happened that split them back up again. Well, what happened was they couldn't agree on how to recite the Lord's Prayer. One group wanted to say, forgive us our trespasses, while the other demanded, no, we should be saying, forgive us our debts. And you can imagine how the story went after that. Actually, a local newspaper in the town reported that one church went back to its trespasses and the other returned to its, to its debts. And these silly stories of silly people in silly churches would be funny if they weren't so real. If they weren't so real in our experience of church, in our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. It's one thing to stand firm on major issues, things that, you know, that should be written in blood in what we believe as a church. There's something that's clearly set out and laid out in Scripture. But it's another thing to pick fights over small jots and titles. And when we find ourselves in situations where we're standing nose to nose with a brother or sister in Christ, and, and, and we, we act like almost like heaven's holding its breath, just waiting to see what's going to happen, then it's a good indication that something's gone terribly wrong. And that's exactly what's going on in the church in Corinth. The church is teetering on the edge 
of, of congregational divorce. From a distance, Paul, Paul discerned those cracks of conflict that, and, and that ultimately would lead to the church's collapse. And Paul felt so moved by what was going on in the church that he was clearly distressed by the church's condition that he couldn't keep silent. So he makes this passionate plea to the Corinthians to reconcile and to leave their selfish desire and to renew their commitment to one another in Jesus. So what does Paul do? What does Paul hope to accomplish from take, talking to the church in Corinth? Well, the first thing to say, and I want to make this really clear, is that we can't take this verse to the extreme. Paul is absolutely somebody who recognises the impossibility of establishing this uniformity uh, of belief and practice in a church. Romans 14, 1 to 3, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person only eats vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And here Paul is addressing the difference in background that we all come from. And, in, and we all have different opinions, different backgrounds, different cultures that we bring. And what he's saying is that there's some issues, guys, that just really don't matter. And that, and that people are very different from one another in God's kingdom. And that's a good thing. And actually in this letter that, that we're in right now, in, in chapters 12 to 14, Paul makes it clear that, that God never intended the church to reflect some sort of rigid uniformity. God is not interested in having a church full of clones that you know, all look exactly alike, all believe exactly the same thing, all do exactly the same thing. The goal is, the goal is unity, not uniformity. And we need to remember that as we approach a subject that there will always be people in church who are different from you, who differ in opinion from you. And, and I think that that variety in, in God's church actually reflects his amazing wonder and power and glory, that everybody is so different, and yet they all come to this realisation of the message of the gospel. It's incredible. God's desire is not to have uniformity in the church, but also he does not have a desire to have division and conflict. And that's the awesome thing about where we are today, the 21st century, we get to look back at what Paul said and the way that he dealt with that conflict in that church. And there's some really vital lessons for you and for me to take away from Paul's words. And the words that Paul gives to the church that's so split, so so. Uh, so uh, split from one another that there's no unity there anymore he says that they must fully focus on Christ the reality is when you or me take our, our focus off Jesus our focus inevitably fixer, fixes in something on something or someone else that's what happens when we take it off Jesus it goes on to selfish pursuits, personal opinions, marginal issues. And we could write a very long list together. You and I could get together and write a very long list of all the things that our attention goes to if it's not on Jesus. And what happens when we misplace our focus is that ultimately it leads to divisions. And these divisions then produce 
quarrels in the church, like little arguments about this and about that. You know, what time should church start? Where should we have the coffee? Where, you know, what, what brand of coffee are we buying? It's terrible. You know, like all these little arguments that just start. And actually these quarrels then bring cliques in the church. And man, have you ever been part of a church that just has all these little cliques going on? It's just the worst. Nobody wants to be part of that church. And how do they come about? Simple. We take our eyes off Jesus. Our heart, our full focus is no longer on him, it's on other things. And the truth is, is that these cliques almost become like these platoons and they're just awaiting orders to strike. <laughs> the opposite clique, right? And we must be so careful as a church to keep our focus fully on Jesus in order that this will never happen. Hebrews 12, 1-2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and, and the sin that is so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer of, and perfecter of faith. If you've taken your eyes off Jesus, then where have, you, where have you put them? If you've taken your eyes and your gaze off him, then where have you put, put your eyes? Where have you put your gaze, your attention? And have you put them on mere things? Like, have you put them on things of the world? When we do, this inevitably leads to materialism. It's, the, it's this unquenchable thirst that we get for more, for more stuff, more money, more gadgets, the newest iPhone, the nicest car, it leads to this overabundance. If your focus uh, has gone from, from Jesus onto materialistic things, then the Bible is very clear that you will continually feel dissatisfied. Paul urges us in, in 1 Timothy not to be arrogant, not to put our hope in wealth which is uncertain. It will let you down. I guess the second thing that I would point out is if you've taken your eyes off Jesus, you know, have you fixed them instead on circumstances? Because the truth is when we, when we fix our eyes and we look at, at our situation and we focus on our circumstances rather than on him, actually this either leads to uh, pride or self-pity. And let me explain by this. What I mean by that is good circumstances tend to give us a false sense of security. They make us feel good, like, like we're in control. And it leads to pride. And bad circumstances, they, they cause us to feel anxious and to feel depressed. But it's completely dependent on what's going on in your life. And the last one that I would ask of you, if you've taken your eyes off Jesus, have you put your eyes, or your gaze, your attention onto somebody else. The Corinthians were really good at this. They were fantastic at it, actually, in turning their attention from the creator and rather putting their attention on the created. <laughs> they, they would make people idols. They would put them on pedestals and they would make them objects of worship. But the truth is, is that we still do that today. Followers of Jesus can discover a new girl, right, who's just the one, right, or the, a new guy who's just a handsome hunk, right, or whatever it is, and they start a new relationship, and they can completely 
they can completely take their eyes from where they're supposed to be and put their attention on that person instead. And that just doesn't apply to romantic relationships. Parents can idolise their children. We idolise sports stars all the time, sports teams even, movie stars, even pastors can be idolised. Now that's a scary thought. But the truth is, whenever we do that, it always leads to disillusion. Because every frail, fallen human will ultimately fall short and bring disappointment to you. The psalmist, psalmist says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And I want to encourage you to, to think seriously about this subject. Have you got family issues going on right now? Church issues? Have you got people at work that you're struggling with? Issues in your marriage? Where, where is it in, in your life where that unity just isn't there? If that is true, then I would seriously ask you to reflect on the, these questions. Honestly, wholeheartedly, and to ask him, the Holy Spirit, come and guide me as I reflect on these questions. Come and show me where I've got it wrong. I want to encourage you to be committed to putting your eyes back onto Jesus. To put aside selfish desires, not trusting in things of the world, or how I feel in this moment, in these circumstances. Not putting your eyes on people around you or, or, or relationships with other people, but actually to give Jesus your 100% full attention. There's this beautiful old chorus and you, you'll know it. It's just the best. It puts it so well. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'm just gonna finish by praying with you guys. Lord, I thank you for that truth, that Lord, you're calling us to give you our full uh, attention, Lord. We wanna give you our gaze, Lord, we wanna to look to you in every circumstance, every situation, every relationship that we're in. Lord, we wanna give you everything. And the truth is, Lord, is the way that we find unity is that we're all unified in the fact that our gaze is 100% on you. Not on our own agenda, not on our own desires, but on you. Lord, I pray for anybody who's watching this this morning and just feels like, man, like, Holy Spirit, I need your help. I need you to identify where that relationship went so wrong. Is it me? Did I take my eyes off you? Did I put it on what I want? Did, was I sidetracked by my agenda, my desires, my wants, my insecurities? Lord, thank you that you uh, don't just justify relationships, Lord. You don't just justify the way things are. Actually, Lord, you're going to bring unity and restoration if we allow you to if we put our attention, our whole attention, on you. Thank you, Lord, that when we do that, our marriages are better, our work lives are better, our, our churches are better, our, our friendships are better. 
So Lord, just help us to do that. Help us, Lord, in our need. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen, guys. I hope you have a great week, uh, but I want to encourage you before you go, let's stay, let's worship together. Anita's going to lead us in a time of worship now.